Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmaid and we travel back now to 2018 and the series Ode to Joystick. On this second edition, we move from 8 to 64-bit. We find ourselves in worlds old and new, searching for mystic treasures, solving puzzles, joining ancient societies, driving fast cars, or at the most fundamental level, just trying to survive that new, very scary-looking monster coming towards us. We learn how some of the top games composers, conductors, and orchestral arrangers challenge themselves with each project to create something new. Imagination and determination are needed in equal measure. Within the region of a hundred years of experience between them, there'll be plenty to talk about. I was, I was sort of starting off the project and I thought, I've got to write a killer main theme. You know, it's just suddenly thought of it and I was actually sitting on a bus and I scribbled it down on the back of a bank statement. The Fallout 4 theme, which is really famous today, is version 29. It's almost more similar to working on a silent movie or an old movie uh, because there's a lot, lot more melodrama. To create a whole new you know, world and its traditional music and a particular fantastical country, what does the music that they play there sound like? You know, that's really, really fun. Koji Kondo's Mario Melody, which you can hear now, is a simple yet devilishly catchy and to many of us is the deadliest of enemies, an earworm. We'll learn more about earworms from a professor at the end of this podcast. Anyhow, rescuing Princess Peach from Bowser will have to wait another day. We have work to do. So then, first we speak to composer Winifred Phillips, who alongside scoring some incredible games, has encouraged others into her world with her book, A Composer's Guide to Games Music. As she wrote in her book, her career started with a eureka moment. I I remember one day, had a day off, I was playing Tomb Raider, the original Tomb Raider, and uh, I remember there's a place in the game where you can just hang out in Lara Croft's mansion and just kind of uh, goof around, and uh, there's a ballroom where you can turn on a radio, and I remember listening to some of the music in that ballroom, and I remember noticing the music at that moment and thinking wow, this is really nice. And maybe a beat or so later thinking, I could write music for games. And and that was my eureka moment. That was when the fir- it first occurred to me that I could be composing music for games. I was able to uh, make a connection with um, Sony Entertainment for the game God of War. And that was my first project, uh, that one. And simultaneously also worked with High Voltage Software on the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory music for their game. It was a simultaneous release with um, with the film directed by Tim Burton starring Johnny Depp. So that was a very uh, cool way to launch into the video game industry doing those two projects. So, and that's really the way I got started. That's how it all began for me. Music has a very 
a profound contribution to player immersion. It can essentially get in your head and change the way in which you experience events and the way in which your mind processes new information. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which music does this. So it as a game composer, we're thinking about music as a component of a what's essentially an intellectual exercise on the part of the player. They're interacting with the game in order to uh, challenge their minds, to experience something that's both in their inner world and also in the world that the game's presenting. So the way the music can interact with the way the human mind works is fascinating to me. It's something that I always love learning more about. It's just such an intriguing part of what we do. And it's something that makes what we do special and different from music creation for any other form of entertainment. I have no more right to enslave you than anyone does. Our next composer, Nitin Sawney, was awarded the Ivor Novello Lifetime Achievement Award. But for him, it was an invitation from actor-director Andy Serkis that began a five-year adventure, scoring two stunningly successful games, soundtracking gamers' moments of frustration or exhilaration, as he explains. I mean, both Heavenly Sword and, um, and Enslaved were, were kind of big... Um, big projects with a lot of people involved and so I think Enslaved was around three years of work and then um, Heavenly Sword was a couple of years so it was kind of five years of work Andy Circus worked in both of them doing the motion capture directing he'd recommended me for the first one and then that went well and it was working with Ninja Theory and, and then they, they said we'd like you to do the next one so that was that was it was just really good fun I mean I I guess the um the gestation period it wasn't really about the score the score wouldn't dictate any of that but it was just um, about the milestones they had to hit it's quite similar these days at the moment i'm doing mowgli for warner brothers and um and that's that's been four years in the making so it depends on the scheduling and the uh, time span over which something's done some of them call me monkey How is it different to maybe some of the other genres you work in? Let, let's say film music. Do the emotions have to be more over the top? How do you approach it? Um, I think there's more of a melodrama. in Well, there was at that time because um, we're dealing a lot with archetypal kind of characterization. Uh, it's almost more similar to working on a silent movie or an old movie uh, because there's a lot, lot more melodrama in interactive gaming than there is in uh, the way we watch film. You're creating alternative realities that aren't necessarily running by the same rules we run by i think in order to get across quite often battles between good and evil which is what is going on with enslaved and heavenly sword um there's more likely to be kind of archetypal characterization involved in that put you on the spot but I mean do you have a favorite theme or moment from either of the games that you're particularly proud of um yeah I mean I do actually I I, I liked I really enjoyed doing the cut scenes with Heavenly Sword I thought there were some really nice moments in those um I remember I think there was one particular one in Heavenly Sword where she's um, well actually I mean it's a weird one I can't say what it is without giving away the ending yeah I can't describe it if I describe it then I'm giving away the ending the ending I really enjoyed the ending with, uh, with Heavenly Sword and then um, I mean it was uh, I really enjoyed there was a particular song that I did with uh, Tina Grace singing that I really enjoyed doing but I mean I, it was it was great doing all of that you know it was, it was lovely to do it. I mean recorded both in uh, with in Prague uh, with the orchestra there and um, and we got we got some great stuff recorded I mean it was um, I also liked doing the Pixie kind of spin-off 
uh, with Enslaved, which was uh, an online kind of thing that happened, and uh, that was fun as well. So I kind of enjoyed doing it. It was kind of a little bit, there was one track that I did for that, which was a bit Tom Waitsy as well. But the orchestral stuff I always enjoy, and I love, I love scoring for film or, or video games when it involves orchestra as well. Were you a gamer and was there anything that had maybe a little bit of an influence on you as a, as a composer in general? I think um, my, my thing is I love, um, I used to love playing Grand Theft Auto actually, but one of the things I like to do is with games like that is just wander around uh, as well and just kind of like with no particular agenda of, of doing anything other than just kind of looking around seeing what's going on. I mean, I love the fact that they'll create worlds in Grand Theft Auto where you can go and watch a stand-up comic. I'm kind of into that whole thing sometimes where you can break away from the action, you can break away from what's happening and there's still a world for you to explore. Uh, and in terms of just the older stuff, I mean, I mean, I go back to the days of the Atari kind of thing where you'd have, you know, you'd be playing tennis with two frigging little kind of uh, rectangular objects on the, on the screen. So I kind of, you know, all of that has influenced me through my whole life, you know, the whole idea of how you kind of interact with computers is um is always and it, it gives you an impression but what i love is that gaming has has just grown at an exponential rate so that it's now making us look at how we consider reality and the nature of reality and and whether we're a simulation ourselves and and it kind of raises a lot of philosophical questions that you wouldn't have really thought of in the days of Pac-Man and, and that kind of thing. You know, now we're looking at creating characters that really feel like they're they're alive or they have their own they have their own identity and we can we can look at living our lives surrogately even through through avatars and so on. So it's kind of it's challenged us so much in the way we think. Um and I think that goes across the board, not just uh, how I write music as a composer, but it's also how I think as a human being and how I perceive everything. Next, I received a mysterious invitation. It left me shaken, but not stirred. Okay, it wasn't that mysterious, but I received an invite from Richard Jakes to visit his studio in central London. He is one of the most respected and hardworking composers, as we'll discover. Richard, like many of the composers we're speaking to, has been surrounded by home computers and consoles since childhood. He has been at the centre of the industry, watching it grow and change from the inside. When I was at university doing my music degree, I had a Sega Mega Drive to entertain me between lectures. <laughs> and um, I was also studying a, a straight um, BA Honours music degree. And then I was very fortunate that um, during my third year, of my music degree, I saw a job advertised in a magazine uh, for an in-house composer at Sega in West London, um, and I was lucky to uh, to land the job. So I was absolutely delighted, and I started. I left. I finished my degree on a Friday, moved to London on the Saturday, and started at Sega on the Monday. So no rest for the wicked, as they say. start talking maybe about some more examples so 
I thought I'd first ask the early days of Sega then uh, what, what, what's one of the first projects you're proud of in regards to the music um, oh, there's quite a few to choose from. Um, certainly one of my earliest ones was um, Shinobi X on the Saturn, where the game already had music in for the Japanese release, but the uh, producer in Europe wanted to change it and give it a slightly different style. So I had to turn that around in about two weeks, the whole game, and there's a lot of music to write and a lot of technical limitations, and I think that was quite a good achievement by doing the entire score in, I think I had about 300k of sound memory. And then, yeah, working on lots of Sega, big Sega IPs like um, Daytona and Sonic and Sega Touring Car. And I think one of my favourite ones has to be Jet Set Radio and Jet Set Radio Future, which were very iconic back in the day. And then, of course, working on Dreamcast, um, titles like Metropolis Street Racer and then Headhunter, which was a big uh, breakout school for me uh, back in 2001. Let's talk about the technology journey. There's not many jobs where the kind of the drawing board changes every few years. It must be uh, an interesting challenge in regards to the technology and how it combines with the music. Yes, that's true. I mean, every cycle of um, console generation does present new, not necessarily challenges. I mean, luckily, the technology just gets better and better. Mm. But it means that sometimes the goalposts move a bit. Uh, luckily, where we are now, they don't move too much for music. They probably do a lot more for sound designers, mm. Um, especially now we're getting into VR and AR and things like that. I mean, for music, it just means that I have more channels to play with and I might be having more multi-channel audio like Dolby Atmos, etc. Um, whereas before, I might have been limited to just a stereo audio file. Now I might be able to play 20 music streams at the same time and fade between them and do lots of interactive music things. The use of themes in games, you know, it's certainly not, not a new thing now, just like it, it's not in film. But the language that we use to identify with characters or certain elements of the story is sort of constantly evolving. And it's, it's not necessarily that one size fits all. You don't, you don't have to take that approach. Sometimes I would think it's appropriate and sometimes not. On a large ensemble cast, you know, it probably wouldn't be. And, and I would never put more than... Personally, myself, I'd never use more than three at the most four main themes. Mm. I think in... Bloodstone we had about three um, and that's enough because otherwise it dilutes what the um, purposes of the theme and, and a good theme should have a lot of longevity and, and you should have it should have a lot of mileage I'll give you a good example actually when I was working on Bloodstone I was, I was sort of starting off the project and I thought I've got to write a killer main theme you know it's got to be amazing and I was actually out of the studio at the time. I wasn't even trying to do it. I just suddenly thought of it. And I was actually sitting on a bus and I scribbled it down on the back of a bank statement um, in sort of rough shorthand. And it just had a really nice shape and really nice scope. And then I sort of tried it, tried it out in the studio the next day. And I, I realised like, it would work in, in an action sequence, a love sequence, a stealth sequence. I thought, yeah, this is the one. So... Sometimes when I'm composing, I, I do use a lot of layers in my music. In Bond, we had sometimes 12 layers of music, and that, that doesn't mean it's just one instrument on one channel and one instrument on another. It means literally I've recomposed that piece 12 times so that it can ebb and flow seamlessly throughout a level. And, you know, we could go from a stealth sequence right up to an action sequence within, let's say, four seconds, and it will sound absolutely perfectly musical. And it's like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle, and that's one of the challenges that I absolutely relish. And I think it's, it's important for any composer working in the medium to really, um, you know, concentrate on that because 
because we're all trying to driving to um, to improve that. And I think there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work out there, and that's another big attraction to to working in the industry. I asked you kindly as we're here in your in your studio in London um, if you would give a recent example. So we've got something in front of us on uh, Pro Tools, I think. So this is a project I'm currently working on. Uh, it's Fractured Space from Edge Case Games, which is a free-to-play team-based space combat with massive capital ships that you're battling in space. So it's a very exciting title. I'll give you an example of the main theme for the game, which will come in and out at other points in the game. This is the first piece I wrote for the game. And... I wanted it to be sort of cinematic and orchestral, but also it, it does encompass a lot of electronica elements as well. I want it to be, to be quite epic as well. And as you'll hear, the theme will have lots of longevity, so you, you will hear it in other parts of the, um, the game. But uh, this is the kind of the opening theme. If you look up at Epic in the dictionary, and that, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm quite known for sort of big epic uh, soundtracks, and but yeah, I like writing in this in this genre. It's exciting. Um, it doesn't have to be overdone, you know. This particular main theme, it's not particularly fast, but it, it has enough s- space, pardon the pun, to, um, to to breathe, and the the melody is fairly simple and, and and it was purposefully composed like that but I think it's starting to really get into the players heads and I've been reading some feedback on the forums and things like that so it's, it's had a good reception so far which I'm, which I'm delighted about. This is obviously so far away from where you started. <laughs> yes it's a little bit different from programming Hex. Um, I mean in my main tool, my main composition tool is Logic Pro on a Mac, uh, that's my, my sequencer of choice. My usual template if I'm writing an orchestral work, it's over 2,000 tracks in my sequencer, so I, I lay it out like a traditional orchestra, so starting with piccolos and woodwind at the top, moving down through wind and brass and then percussion and then strings at the bottom because that's how a traditional classical score is laid out. Then we get into electronic territory, so I have lots of my um, my synths and um, things like that. So that could be another 50 tracks or something. Not all playing at the same time, of course. Just I, I like to have a palette there to work with, and I'd quite often sit down and, and um, create new sounds before actually starting a project. Um, so that would be how I sort of work, and then I'd start composing. And then once I finish writing the track, I'll transfer it into Pro Tools, which is the platform I prefer to uh, record and mix. Very, very flexible, powerful tool. Um, every major studio has it. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the nice thing is that what is what started off as a very niche industry back in the 80s is now, you know, especially in regards to the music, is being taken seriously. And I think that's what I'm trying to get across uh, in these interviews. Yes, you know, that's something that... Um is 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 a really good thing that has that's finally happened. I think video game music used to be looked down on by non-gamers, highbrow music critics, um, etc. But now we have seen various groundbreaking soundtracks and people that are really pushing the barriers uh, in the games industry. You know, both by working with you know live orchestras by you know concert series you know people like you know BAFTA and the Ivan Novello Awards that mm. are recognising 
I managed to get the uh, Ave Novello category established back in the 2010 and it's, it's back this year. So these kind of things are really, really important to garner the respect that, that video game music has deserved. I mean, you know, we've, we've had various very well-known film composers working in games and crossover genres with big electronica artists. That You know, this is a medium that people want to work in now. You know, considering how young the games industry still is, it's, it's, it's a much younger cousin of the film industry. But I think, um, yeah, it's really good to see the likes of, you know, the London Philharmonic Orchestra calling me up and asking if they can perform my music uh, at the Festival Hall, you know, and these kind of things at such iconic venues. It's, re it's really important, and I think uh, we've really come, come of age as an industry. As the sun glares in our eyes and the sand enters our shoes, let's go somewhere very different as our journey in video games music continues. We're halfway through the second edition of this podcast series. I hope you're enjoying the music as much as the interviews. Our next composer, Austin Wintory, was nominated for a Grammy for his score to Journey, which we're listening to now. He has built a career through a sense of exploration and curiosity, as we're about to discover. I often reflect on the fact that I was a gamer long before I was a musician and certainly before I was a composer. I honestly don't even know when my earliest gaming memories are because they're so kind of primordial that they, they just go back to the beginning when all memories start to become kind of fuzzy. And But in terms of the actual start of my career, it happened in college when I started working with student game designers and working on kind of these tiny, uh, rather humble student games. Um, and one of them that I worked on very early, in fact, it was only the second game that I had done, ended up getting picked up by Sony to be remade into a PlayStation 3 game um, at the very beginning days of the, of the PlayStation 3. And that, that game was called Flow, and it was kind of the launch title for that game company and for the careers of people like Genova Chen and Kelly Santiago, who would several years later go on to make Journey, uh, to, you know, to which I owe seemingly my whole career today. So uh, so yeah, I, I had essentially one ridiculously lucky break as a student, but the passion and the idea of scoring games was something that was there for me from, from kind of the earliest days. What's it like when you have a project which spans over a few years? There must be many ups and downs, a sense of adventure, I suppose. The work ends up reflecting the ebbs and flows of your, of your actual life during that span. Like, for example, I was hired, I was very fortunate to be hired for the game journey by Sony and that game company when I was about 24 years old. And the game shipped when I was 27. And it dawned on me sometime after that, that three-year project that finishes by the time I'm 27 meant that well over 10% of my entire life had been spent on that one project. And that blew my mind when I realized, and, and I thought, you know, I've changed a lot in this period of time. But on top of that, the game had such a profound impact on me that part of what drove the changes in who I was, was working on the game itself. So it was like this self-fulfilling prophecy almost. 
it can be very difficult to predict how that will impact the writing. And I don't even know that I could articulate it more specifically than that. But that's one of the things I actually really love because not only is it impacting my writing as I kind of grow and evolve or devolve and regress <laughs> as the case may be, but you also go through all that with your team. So it's like, you know, people will fall in love and get married or get divorced or have kids or their kids will move away and go to college or whatever. And, and like major life milestones will happen amongst the members of the team during that span in a way that really, I think, can can bond you and, and make it uh, more than just this kind of purely professional relationship. And I absolutely love that. And have you ever used unusual techniques when writing a score? I always, well, let me put it this way. I always try to make every project have some kind of uh, unusual twist or, or some kind of uh, X factor that helps tweak my creative process. Because I believe that when you vary your approach, you will inevitably vary the outcome. Uh, so an example, a concrete example of this recently I was working over several years with a game on a game called Luna that just came out a few months ago. This is a very personal kind of introspective and, and um, reflective game about the grieving process and about dealing with loss through all of these kind of visual metaphors. And I dealt with a lot of loss in my life on a personal level during the course of the game. And so after several years on the project, I decided to throw out all the music I had written. And I went into a studio and that had a little upright piano in it. And I set up the microphones with the engineer and then I told her to leave the building for two hours. So I was completely alone. And I put a bunch of photos up on this piano of the people that I had lost and then some of the artwork from the game. And I sat and I improvised for all, you know, for like 95, 100 minutes straight. And then over the course of seven or eight months, I extracted material from that improvisation to to create the score from and in some cases even was able to kind of literally use excerpts from this piano recording and uh, and it also was a way to kind of let myself sink into an emotional place through physical action that got me somewhere emotionally i, I don't know that i would have gone through a more intellectualized process uh the, the kind of slower process of composing and so uh it completely and totally altered what luna ended up being as a result Uh, and sometimes, you know, the music ends up becoming, uh, having a life of its own. And then sometimes, um, it, it, you know, disappears immediately, or sometimes a game can be highly beloved, but the music doesn't really get much notice separate from that. I mean, it's one of those things you just have no control over. So my, my goal is always to, to absorb it as personally and, and, um, sort of, uh, directly as I can and put myself in it as much as I you know, could hope to, um, and, um, and see if the audience responds. And I just kind of leave it up to them at that point. To finish the interview, I wanted to go back to the beginning. Was there a classic score that has real importance uh, for you? Well, absolutely. One of my great heroes in, in the world of games, who I feel so fortunate to call a good friend, is a composer named Peter McConnell, who got his start in the video game arm of Lucasfilm, you know, George Lucas's company that created the Star Wars films, they he, they created a video game arm called LucasArts that uh, in the 90s particularly was one of the powerhouses of the game industry and produced, of course, a bunch of Star Wars games, but a bunch of other completely original standalone games as well. And Peter McConnell was one of this sort of legendary trio of composers who were in charge of all the sound and audio on all those games, the other two being uh, Michael Land and a guy named Clint Bajakian. And Peter was, you know, they all they all traded around um, responsibilities, but Peter was, I, I think, one of, it was essentially kind of the main composer of the group and wrote the score to 
the kind of magnum opus of that era and that company, a game called Grim Fandango, which is absolutely one of my favorite games and game scores, you know, independent of each other of all time. But all of Peter's writing, spectacular. And he's also one of the very few uh, composers who have been around for the majority of the history of the medium. I mean, he got started in the late 80s, early 90s, and he's still a very relevant and in-demand composer today and there are very few people that that's true for the the game industry kind of splits generationally and the people that were there in the very beginning tend to not be around much today uh, because it changed so much a lot of people got left behind or for them it was a mid-career shift back then and so now they are retirement age and just retired Uh, and you know other factors along those lines yeah, Grim Fandango by Peter McConnell is, is always my favorite recommendation. In more recent years, another that I would recommend is by another dear friend, a composer named Jessica Curry, who did a game called Everybody's Gone to the Rapture that is one of my favorite modern game scores. I mean, I think it's one of the great scores of all time in games, but in the last several years, I think it, it really stands at the top of the pile. We escape the USA and find ourselves now in Ireland with composer and conductor Ema Noon, the world's current premier conductor of video game scores, both in the studio and in the concert hall. As a composer, Ema is part of the team writing the music for World of Warcraft, Warlords of Draenor, and conductor of the Zelda Symphony, a full four-movement symphony created from the themes from the iconic video game. She is a very busy person. I started by asking her what was important when building a new world. There are things that we do, for instance, language. When you have choir, you have to be really careful with language because it can put someone, it has baggage. If you're using Agnus Dei, for instance, the Lamb of God, that's religious text. Uh, that's got connotations. And then you have things like, you know, Orkish, and you have made up languages that are fun. But oftentimes we'll create these hybrid languages so as not to influence um, the, the player and, and not lead them too much into, into something. We're creating something that's fantastical. Also why it's so much fun to use world instruments from all over the world. Um, especially fun for me because I'm Irish, so I, I, I bring in a little bit of that into it. And uh, my, my husband is, is Jewish, so I bring in some, some old Hebraic stuff mixed with Irish, mixed with Persian, mixed with... I mean, it's just so cool. But the, the more we, we mix world instruments with the orchestra in a, in a very fantastical way, the more we can help create another world completely other nation, as it were, you know, Azeroth, we need to find the, the real sound of, of this place. And you have to be careful because marimbas can straight away put you in the jungle if you're not careful. Or um, uh, a deduk can put you in the Middle East, depending on how you, how you use it. It's really fun for us. It's, we're like kids in a candy store to create a whole you know, world and, and its traditional music and, and particular, a particular fantastical country. What does the music that they play there sound like? You know, that's really, really fun. How does being a conductor benefit you as a video games composer? Are there sort of connections between the two? Uh, it's funny, actually. It's like two separate brains in some ways, and they each 
argue with each other and inform each other and uh, I'll have these debates with, with myself about that's not going to work on the stage but it's not for the stage Emer but uh, you know and it's it's two different things but at the same time I often picture the musicians playing what I'm writing and that definitely influences me just seeing how seeing the bows moving in my imagination seeing the brass playing mad rips or watching the percussion in my imagination what they're doing big taiko drums pulling their arms back and I mean I really do visualize like that uh, the other thing that I do is um I hear orchestration in in different color palettes so based on what I'm looking at on a on a visual if it's lots of brownish reddish russet type colors to me that's a very particular string sound in my imagination or if i see lots of blues and and colder colors i can think of specific woodwind voicings in in my mind's ear and that's really helpful actually to me the orchestra is something i've grown up inside of in front of as just part of my dna my first job in video games was being an arranger and an orchestrator so all those three things make each other better and for me the type of artist i am i have to be able to do all three or i don't feel like i'm expressing myself the way i need to which leads me on to ask whether you're a perfectionist or not oh god it's a terrible affliction my goodness yeah it's it's horrifying it, that's a horrifying condition um absolutely and you know what the other thing is I know gamers live with this music for a long time. It's not just like watching a movie where it's over and if you really really like the score, maybe you buy the CD, maybe you don't. For video game music, people are it's complete immersion for quite a long period of time and people get really deeply um acquainted with the music. So you want every detail. I mean, we obsess over every articulation mark, everything. We obsess over everything. myself and, and my friend John Curlander who's was resident engineer at Abbey Road for 30 years we would literally sit down and debate where to move the tuba player within within a, a foot uh you know for 20 minutes you know it's it's ridiculous nerdiness that that makes me feel good it makes me feel less anxious about putting the work out there because i feel gamers are very discerning they're very detail oriented if i'm that obsessive and that nerdy about it I'll probably cover most of the bases uh for the audience. <laughs> But uh, makes me feel my anxiety over details makes me feel less anxious about putting the music out there. So let that loop play in your head for a while and talk about <laughs> neurotic uh composers. <laughs> back now to the states and los angeles and enan zor another extremely hard working composer who started off writing music as an in-house television composer for the power rangers he wrote 360 episodes of music but now has ended up writing video game scores to be played by the likes of the london symphony orchestra Is it fair to say that you either had or you've developed a, a tough skin? I know it's similar in the in the world of film music where maybe your first idea isn't accepted and it may be your seventh they they like. Well, just to 
basically give you a little example. Um, the Fallout 4 theme, which is really famous today, is version 29. So there you have it. And my son wants to go into music. He's 18, my middle son, and he wants to be a composer, and that's what I'm telling him. You just need to know that you are facing uh, rejection, rejections on a daily basis. Could you tell me about the preparation process or the perhaps even research process? I think it's a great question. And in fact, this is the question. Um, when I worked on Fallout for Far Harbor, we thought about the idea of taking the music and sort of like have the music grow from nature or grow from the sounds that we hear. So we started to listen to basically the sound of the waves, the sound of um, the wind, this, all these sounds, fog horns, lots of basically sounds that has nothing to do with music. And then I tried to start mimic these sounds. So the wind was being sort of like emulated by some bowed materials, bowed guitars, bowed vases, bowed thing. And it has this whoosh thing. Uh, water was always um, mimicked by some sort of like a synth, basically uh, combined with some kind of like weird piano sound. And so you got this detuned thing going on like you're playing an instrument underwater. All these things basically were ideas that were thrown on the table. And, you know, you take them and you try to make sense out of them. And it's a beautiful process. Could you pick a character from one of your games talk about that character connect that with how you wrote for them and and the, and the game and the music developed actually i really like the question and uh one that comes in mind is kate walker kate walker is the hero in the siberia series and she's very interesting character um she's a rogue character um she never settles for what's convenient and what people are telling her to do uh she's a rebel always will try to make good but she doesn't really care about rules when it comes to like where she is and she will fight and the music that follows her will always develop she has one theme but it will be developed according to her character and we meet her the first time she's really young and she's just basically a, a traveler in Siberia 1. But in Siberia 3, she already becomes like a human rights fighter. So the music that in the beginning was simple uh, turned into something that is heavier, is more tragic, it's conflicting, and it's also full of elements of these characters um, that she's saving, which is basically embedded in her theme. So the, the music definitely developed according to how the story is developing her. It, it, it was quite remarkable, I think. Danish composer Jesper Kidd is a self-taught musician who used the Commodore 64 and Amiga as his initial tools for composition. As the computer systems grew and expanded, so did his ambition. Could you give me an example where you've perhaps gone quite intense in the detail 
Um, well, I think I try to do that with, with all my music for games, actually. It's like, I, I see it more like if you compose, you know, combat or suspense, tension, all that kind of music, that has a bit of more, that has more form, you know, and it needs to work in a specific way. It needs to become uh, at a certain dynamic and a certain intensity, you know, within a certain amount of time. But as far as like uh, my exploration music, when you are exploring the world and, you know, open world games are my favorite games to play and my favorite games to work on. And so I would say that the open world games I've done is where um, all that detail is, is, is put into. So, you know, the Assassin's Creed and the Hitman and, and you know, Darksiders 2 and uh, State of K, you know, 1 and 2. Th- those are games where I really feel like I put a lot of details in there. Okay, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me an example of a piece of detail that people may not notice, but is there. <laughs> well... You know, uh, uh, you know the the story about Edge's family is actually pretty interesting because that was something that I thought we needed for that game. We needed a theme for Ezio, but it was a, a, a it was a detail that the team had never asked me to provide. You know, they didn't feel. I don't think it was that they didn't feel we needed a theme for him or anything like that. It was just we didn't have use for that music. You know, but I felt we I, I needed this music to to come out and and express Ezio's journey, and so um, that could very much be called a detail because it wasn't it was something extra that I wrote and that wasn't even supposed to be in there, and so I, I you know I did you know several different versions and some of it we all, we recorded with orchestra and choir and everything. orchestra and choir performance because I was like telling Ubisoft listen we don't have anywhere to put this music and we're spending all this money recording this song this is what I was thinking I wasn't actually telling anyone this but I was just thinking to myself this is this is a quite of a unique situation but of course then then you know Ubisoft decided to put it um, in the opening of the game and it became the end credits but that was very much a place where I was like this is you know, I'm adding all this detail into all this music and it's not even supposed to be there. Another European composer and arranger, this time from Bulgaria, is Penka Kuniva, who has worked with the likes of Steve Jablonski on orchestrating the game scores for big franchise games such as Transformers and Gear of War. It's something I love. It's something I'm really passionate about. The moment when I decided to become a media composer, I embraced the idea that I will always work with people, they will always give me notes, and I have to be okay with uh, you know, implementing the notes and... Um, giving back revised versions. There's a lot of iteration for all of us, for, for artists, for composers, for audio people. We all kind of refine the project um, as we go along. When you're working on a orchestral uh, cinematic score, do you have any sort of limitations in regards to how big the orchestra is or what you can do or achieve? How does that work? Yeah. So two things are defining for my work. The sound of the music becomes a branding device for the game developers. And let me explain this because it's really important. Smart game developers use their score and their sound as a tool to really brand the game and kind of make that sonic signature and to make the game stand apart from similar games, from the competition. Uh, in other words, music is used as a very powerful tool in, in game scoring. And one thing I learned in games, which I didn't know before from scoring films, is that each game score for each game is very specific. They try, And again, because they try to use the, the music as kind of a signature for the game, 
to, to answer your question more directly, the orchestra ensemble is defined by these conceptual conversations. And of course, it's also defined by the budget. So that's the second. My job is to work within these limitations and deliver the best possible score with the limitation of the budget to fulfill the vision of my collaborators. I've got this right you've composed for mobile phones could you talk about that world a little bit you said it's your bread and butter and what are the challenges for that i mean they're obviously very different i would say um scoring mobile games uh, becomes even like almost like like scoring jingles you have to create a sonic signature you have to create a style you have to create like a motif or theme that becomes so much associated with the game that it becomes like the jingle of the game. Last year, I composed um, for a game called Cookie Jam. It's a fun game. It's an ongoing franchise, and um, I was supposed to do French music. So it's like French waltzes, waltzes with accordion, and then enough flavor, like orchestral flavor, little guitars and harps and strings and a little bit horns. So so that it's you know it's overall instrumental orchestral music, but it's not like heavy orchestra. So I would say in, in mobile games, the score becomes even more of a signature. In, in, that, in that sense, it's similar to how TV jingles, even the traditional jingles of where you have one sonic signature that becomes associated with the brand. It's that idea of an earworm or a catchy tune. That's not easy to do, or, or, or is it? No, it's not easy. No, <laughs> That's exactly the idea. I mean, if you think of Tetris, the whole point behind that music is to become that Earworm, or even like Mario. I mean, think how iconic that the Mario theme is, and uh, the purpose is so that you remember the theme. And by remembering the theme, you also remember how the music made you feel and the whole gameplay experience. And uh, you just have a memory of playing the game because that's the whole point. Uh, because there's such competition, there's so much product out there, so many games that each game maker wants their game to be remembered. And music is a very powerful tool. And now I'd like to suggest something that from the beep beep of Space Invaders to the loop limitations of 8-bit tunes onwards, earworms have been a common malady for the serious or even casual gamer. Who can forget this Russian folk tune which became the Tetris theme on the Game Boy? So I thought before we finished this edition of the podcast, we had time to speak to a professor of psychology from Goldsmiths University about the phenomenon of the earworm. Alongside the interview itself, you'll hear a greatest computer earworms hall of fame. Don't fret, though, we'll suggest how to remove them from your head at the end of the interview. Yes, so we talk about it in terms of a snippet of a tune that comes unbidden into mind and then repeats itself. The type of music can be all sorts of things. It can be pop music, it can be classical, it can have lyrics, it may not have lyrics. And sometimes it's just a little hook that's repeated or sometimes people have like whole symphonies going on in their head. So so there's a, quite a lot of variation in terms of what people refer to as an earworm. We assume with earworms that they're a pest and a negative thing. Have you thought of any sort of positiveness? Yeah, well, we've done some research and we've shown that actually it's it's not really the case that people find them to be negative. So people either find them to be quite neutral or they um, actually report in quite enjoying them. We've developed um, a scale called the IMIS that was developed by a student, Georgina Floridou, um, and this is this captures individual variation in the earworm response. So this covers, uh, it's a self-report questionnaire asking people about how they feel about the music in their heads, whether they f- find it helpful. And we find that some people, how the music in their heads helps them resolve sort of personal issues that might be going on. So very often particular ear- earworms are triggered by sort of issues that uh, people have been thinking about. 
And it, very often people talk about earworms helping them to get things done. So maybe the rhythmic aspect of having music in your head can be quite effective sometimes. We've also ha got some evidence that, that the type of music, that the, the particular songs that you get in your head are a, a, an appropriate match. So, for instance, we know that the tempo that people experience familiar tunes is very, very close to the original recorded tempo of the songs, like within less than 10% difference. So even when it's spontaneously experienced, this inner music is quite accurate, quite faithful to the original temporal features of the song. And this means that actually, we're, if we're in a downbeat mood, we get songs that are from that range of tempi. And if we're in an upbeat mood, we get songs that are quite upbeat. But we, importantly, we always get them very close to the actual original recorded tempo. So this kind of parallels um, what we've now found with, with our studies on earworms is that the earworms that you experience are not random, but they are appropriate to your um, level of mood and arousal as well. Any advice on getting an earworm out of your head? Yes, we've done work on that as well. We asked people to tell us what they what they do when they want to stop the music in their head. Their responses broke down into two broad categories. One category was um, distraction, and the other category was um, the opposite of distraction, which was engagement. So engagement meant people seeking out an actual recording of that music and listening to it seemed to be helpful, um, or even just sort of finding out what the song was and what the tune was, that they seemed to, they needed this extra information in order to kind of get some closure on it. And the distraction was um, listening to other songs. And in particular, some people talked about Cure songs not the cure, but songs that they said were particularly effective in terminating earworm experiences, but not getting stuck themselves. The other thing I should say, actually, is that there's a published paper. So our paper on... Um, what people do to stop earworm activity is based on self-report, but there's also a published paper showing that chewing gum can be effective as well. Um, it could make sense because when we experience kind of inner music or inner singing, even though we're not overtly singing using the, the larynx and the voice, having the representation songs um, nevertheless requires us to use those parts of our brains that are, if you like, involved in motor planning. So we don't actually execute the movements of larynx and our voice, but, but nevertheless we have, if you like, prepared to do so. If you do something else with your mouth or your throat, like sipping water through a straw or chewing gum, so that you're essentially using your motor planning areas to execute these physical activities, that has the effect of suppressing the earworms because those brain areas are not free to generate the, um, if you like, what we call the sub-vocalisation, sub a representation of song, but without the explicit movement involved. <laughs> Lawrence, playing the earworm, the theme from Tetris, the Russian folk melody, on the synthesizer of its day, the Henry Willis organ at the Union Chapel in Islington, London. 
Speaking of hearing video games music in unusual places, on episode three, we discover how video games music can now be heard pretty much anywhere from the Royal Albert Hall to the muddy fields of Glastonbury. We learn about syncing and how labels are releasing classic scores on very vibrant coloured vinyl and where VR and gaming music can lead us next. And met a very rapt crowd of people drenched in cider and too much drum and bass who were doing their nuts to hear, you know, Assassin's Creed or, you know, Mass Effect Suicide Mission or Angry Birds. It was like, this was the, the protein that they'd been missing all weekend. I can't tell you how grateful they were. It's brilliant. Thanks to all the composers from around the world who were incredibly generous with their time, often on short notice, to be involved in this podcast. This series, though, is just a short glimpse into their careers and music, so do use this as a starting point to investigate further. Thanks also to Anthony Ryan for some mastering magic on the organ and Kenny and Thomas for their earworm suggestions. Joining the bleeps and bloops in this podcast, you heard songs from the Where Is My Heart soundtrack by Alexandro Coronas with in-house audio design from Die Gutter Fabric of Denmark. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. It's here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. For now, once again, game over. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.